we are. The last installment of the prodigal series. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. One more time. I just want to read down through quickly again. For those of you that have not been here throughout this series, I want you to get some context about where we are. We're in the midst of a parable that Jesus told in three sections. Talked about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son. We're talking about the lost son that came home. Verse 11. And he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, and I'm dying here with hunger? I'll get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son told him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, was devoured your wealth and with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. As we conclude our extended look at this parable, I've called it the parable of prodigal people, I want to approach it a little differently than the rest of this series so far. 
Rather than preach the text expositionally, which I have been doing, I want to stimulate your thinking this morning as well as your emotions by exploring the thought of Jesus himself as the prodigal of sorts. My purpose this morning is simply to plant that seed in your mind so that you may meditate and reflect on it yourselves. And the way I want to present that idea to you is to surround the concept with two extended stories. Okay? One at the beginning, one at the end. The first... I'm told, became a cult classic after being made into a movie back in the 1980s. Under the pseudonym, Isaac Dinesen, the Danish author, Khan Bleeksen, wrote Babette's Feast. Any of you seen that movie? I'd like you to listen. Sit back and listen. You can close your eyes if you want to. You can pay attention to the sides behind me if you want to. You can fall asleep if you want. I'm giving you permission. God will awaken you at the right time. <laughs> Holy Spirit will make sure of that. I want you to listen as I read one man's description of this classic. Dinesen set her story in Norway, but the Danish filmmakers changed the location to an impoverished village on the coast of Denmark, a town of muddy streets and thatched roof hovels. In this grim setting, a white-bearded dean led a group of worshipers in an austere Lutheran sect. What few worldly pleasures could tempt a peasant in Norris Vosburg, this section renounced. All wore black. Their diet consisted of boiled cod and a gruel made from boiling bread and water fortified with a splash of ale. On the Sabbath, the group met together and sang songs about Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me. They had fixed their compasses on the new Jerusalem with life on earth tolerated as a way to get there. The old dean, a widower, had two teenage daughters, Martine, named for Martin Luther, and Philippa, named for Luther's disciple, Philip Melanchthon. Villagers used to attend the church just to feast their eyes on these two whose radiant beauty could not be suppressed despite the sisters' best efforts. Martine caught the eye of a dashing young cavalry officer. When she successfully resisted his advances, he rode away to marry instead a lady-in-waiting to Queen Sophia. Philippa possessed not only a beauty, but also the voice of a nightingale. When she sang about Jerusalem, shimmering visions of the heavenly city seemed to appear. And so it happened that Philippa made the acquaintance of the most famous operatic singer of the day, the Frenchman Aki Papin, who was spending some time on the coast for his health. As he walked the dearth paths of the backwater town, Papin heard the astonishment with astonishment, a voice worthy of the grand opera of Paris. Allow me to teach you to sing properly, he urged Philippa, and all of France will fall at your feet. Royalty will line up to meet you when you will ride in a horse-drawn horse carriage to dine at the magnificent Café Anglais. Flattered, 
Philippa consented to a few lessons, but only a few. Singing about love made her very nervous. The fluttering she felt inside troubled her further. And when an aria from Don Giovanni ended with her being held in Papin's embrace, his lips brushing hers, she knew beyond a doubt that these new pleasures must be renounced. Her father wrote a note declining all future lessons and a key return to Paris. As disconsolate as if he'd misplaced a winning lottery ticket. Fifteen years passed and much changed in the village. The two sisters, now middle-aged spinsters, had attempted to carry on the mission of their deceased father, but without his stern leadership, the sect splintered badly. Although the sect still met on the Sabbath and sang the old hymns, only a handful bothered to attend. The music had lost its luster. In spite of all these problems, the dean's two daughters remained faithful organizing the services and boiling bread for the toothless elders of the village. One night, a night too rainy for anyone to venture on the muddy streets, the sisters heard a heavy thump at the door. And when they opened it, a woman collapsed in a swoon. They revived her only to find she spoke no Danish. She handed them a letter from Akil Pape, the sight of his name, Philippe's face blushed. And her hand trembled as she read the letter of introduction. The woman's name was Babette, and she had lost her husband and son during the Civil War in France. Her life in danger, she had to flee. And Papin had found her passage on a ship in hopes that this village might show her mercy. Babette can cook, the letter read. The sisters had no money to pay Babette and felt it dubious about employing a maid in the first place. They distrusted her cooking. I mean, didn't the French eat horses and frogs? But through gestures and pleading, Babette softened their hearts. She would do any chores in exchange for room and board. For the next 12 years, Babette worked for the sisters she fed the poor people of the town and took over all the housekeeping chores. She even helped with Sabbath services, and everyone had to agree that Babette brought new life to this stagnant community. Since Babette never referred to her past life in France, it came as a great surprise to Martine and Philippa when one day after 12 years, she received her very first letter. Babette read it, and looked up to see the sisters staring at her and announced matter-of-factly that a wonderful thing had happened to her. Each year, a friend in Paris had renewed Babette's number in the French lottery. And this year, her ticket had won. 10,000 francs. The sisters pressed Babette's hands in congratulations, but inwardly their hearts sank. They knew soon that Babette would be leaving. And as it happened, Babette's winning the lottery coincided with the very time the sisters were discussing a celebration to honor the 100th anniversary of their father's birth. Babette came to them with a request. 
In 12 years, I have asked nothing of you, she began. But now I have a request. I would like to prepare the meal for the anniversary service. I would like to cook you all a French dinner. Although the sisters had grave misgivings about this plan, Babette was certainly right that she had asked no favors in 12 years. What choice had they but to agree? When the money arrived from France, Babette went away briefly to make arrangements for the dinner. And over the next few weeks after her return, the residents of Norris Vosburg were treated to one amazing sight after another as boats docked to unload provisions for Babette's kitchen. Workmen pushed wheelbarrows loaded with crates of small birds, cases of champagne. Champagne and wine soon followed. The entire head of a cow, fresh vegetables, truffles, pheasants, hams, strange creatures that lived in the sea, a huge tortoise still alive and moving his snake-like head from side to side. All these ended up in the sister's kitchen, now firmly ruled by Babette. Martine and Philippa, alarmed over this apparent witch's brew, explained their predicament to the members of the sect, now old and gray and only 11 in number. Everyone clucked in symphony. After some discussion, they agreed to eat the French meal, withholding comment about it lest Babette get the wrong idea. Tongues were meant for praise and thanksgiving, not for indulging in exotic tastes. It snowed on December 15th, the day of the dinner, brightening the dull village with a gloss of white. The sisters were pleased to learn that an unexpected guest would join them. 90-year-old Miss Lohenhan would be escorted by her nephew, the cavalry officer who had courted Martine long ago, now a general serving in the royal palace. Babette had somehow scrounged enough china and crystal and had decorated the room with candles and evergreens. Her table looked absolutely lovely. When the meal began, all the villagers remembered their agreement and sat mute like turtles around a pond. Only the general remarked on the food and drink, Amontillado, he exclaimed when he raised the first glass, and to the finest amontillado that I've ever tasted. And when he sipped the first spoonful of soup, the general could have sworn it was turtle soup. But how could such a thing be found on the coast of Jutland? Incredible, said the general, when he tasted the next course. It is Blinny Demidoff. All the other guests, their faces puckered with deep wrinkles, were eating the same rare delicacy without expression or comment. When the general rhapsodized about the champagne, Babette ordered her kitchen boy to keep the general's glass filled at all times. He alone seemed to appreciate what was set before him. Although no one else spoke of the food or drink, gradually the banquet worked a magical effect on the church villagers. Their blood warmed. Their tongues loosened. They spoke of the old days when the dean was alive and of Christmas, the year the bay froze. The brother who had cheated another on a business deal finally confessed, and the two women who had feuded found themselves conversing. A woman burped, and the brother next to her said without thinking, Hallelujah! 
The general, though, could speak of nothing but the meal. When the kitchen boy brought out the coup de grace, the general exclaimed that he had seen, never seen such a dish. Well, he actually only had seen it in one place in Europe, the famous Café Anglais in Paris. The restaurant once renowned for its woman chef. Heady with wine, his senses sated, unable to contain himself, the general rose to make a speech. Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together, he began. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. And then the general had to pause, for he was in the habit of forming his speeches with care, conscious of his purpose. But here in the midst of the dean's simple congregation, it was as if the whole figure of General Lowenheim, his breast covered with decorations, were but a mouthpiece for a message which meant to be brought forth. And the general's message was grace. Although the brothers and sisters of the sect did not fully comprehend the general's speech, at that moment, the vain illusions of this earth had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really is. The little company broke up and went outside into a town coated with glistening snow under a sky ablaze with the stars. And Babette's feast ends with two scenes. Outside, the old-timers join hands around the fountain and lustily sing the old songs of faith. It is a communion scene. Babette's feast opened the gates and grace stole in. They felt, adds Isaac Dinesen, as if they had indeed had their sins washed white as wool and in this regained innocent attire were gambling like little lambs. The final scene takes place inside the house. In the wreck of a kitchen piled high with unwashed dishes, greasy pots, shells, grisly bones, broken crates, vegetable trimmings, and empty bottles. Babette sits amidst the mess, looking as wasted as the night she arrived 12 years before. And suddenly, the sisters realize that in accordance with the vow, no one has spoken to Babette about the dinner. It was quite a nice dinner, Babette, Martine says tentatively. Babette seems far away at this point. And after a time, she says to them, I was once cook at the Café Anglais. We will all remember this evening when you have gone back to Paris, Babette Martinez, as if not hearing her. Babette tells them that she will not be going back to Paris. All her friends and relatives there have been killed or imprisoned. And of course, it would be expensive to return to Paris. But what about the 10,000 francs, the sister asked. Then Babette drops the bombshell. She has spent her winnings, every last franc of the 10,000 she won on the feast that they had just devoured. Don't be shocked, she tells them. 
That is what a proper dinner for 12 costs at the Café Anglais. Philip Yancey says, in the general speech, Isaac Dinesen leaves no doubt that she wrote Babette's Feast not simply as a story of a fine meal, but as a parable of grace. Grace, a gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. This is what General Lowenheim told the grim-faced grim parishioners gathered around him at Babette's table. Quote, we have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe. But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Twelve years before, Babette had landed among the graceless ones. Followers of Luther, they heard sermons on grace nearly every Sunday and the rest of the week tried to earn God's favor with their pieties and renunciations. Grace came to them in the form of a feast, Babette's feast. A meal of a lifetime lavished on those who had in no way earned it, who barely possessed the faculties to receive it. Grace came to that town as it always comes, free of charge, no strings attached and on the house. Now, if I were to choose three phrases to describe Jesus' presentation of grace in this parable, it would be those. Free of charge, no strings attached, on the house. In fact, that's precisely what Jesus sought to instill in his disciples' minds and the Pharisees and scribes sought to destroy him for promoting. No matter whose perspective you take in this parable, the same three truths appear. Grace comes as a free gift, free of charge, no strings attached on the house. Truly, the younger son longs for and hopes beyond hope for a grace that is free of charge, even though he offers to work for it upon his return. He'd love his father's acceptance with no string attached, no strings attached, one that's on the house. And indeed, that's exactly what he gets when he comes home. Grace that's free of charge, no strings attached, and on the house is the father's gift to his son. And it's what sets the older son off in a tirade of complaint and ingratitude, revealing his true heart. Earlier in the series, I suggested that each one of the characters could be considered a prodigal. The younger son because of his reckless squandering, the father because of his lavish extravagance, 
and the older son, because of his indifferent and ungrateful heart, which literally became oblivious to all the blessings of grace around him. As I have studied the passage and read numerous authors, one intriguing idea, however, captured my attention. The thought that Jesus could himself be considered a prodigal goes way beyond the traditional interpretation of the parable, yet I believe warrants our contemplation. It is that thought which I want you to mull over. In fact, the communion table we celebrated last week vividly reminds us and unveils the thought that Jesus became a prodigal son for your sake and mine. One man observes, he left the house of his heavenly father, came to a foreign country, gave away all that he had and returned through his cross to the father's home. All of this he did not as a rebellious son, but as an obedient son sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. Now, wasn't Jesus himself, who in fact was being criticized for receiving sinners, in the midst of living out that long, painful journey of the prodigal son? Isn't the broken young man kneeling before his father the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Isn't he the innocent one who became sin for us? Isn't he the one who didn't cling to his equality with God but became as human beings are? Isn't he the sinless son of God, the prodigal son of the prodigal father who gave away everything the father had entrusted to him so that I could become like him and return with him to the father's home? See, looking at the parable this way opens our eyes to the fact that Jesus was giving these disciples and scribes and Pharisees a preview of coming attractions. It's as if the Pharisees were getting a full-color snapshot of what was about to be unveiled before their very eyes. Because you remember, when he told them the parable, the cross had not happened. We look at it through that stained glass window. What Jesus was giving them a sneak preview of was the gospel of grace free of charge, no strings attached, and on the house. Jesus, the very one who told the story, is himself the word of God made flesh. And as Henry Nouwen once wrote, once I look at the story of the prodigal son with the eyes of faith, the return of the prodigal becomes the return of the son of God who has drawn all people unto himself and brings them home to his heavenly father. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 19, in the Good News Bible, for it was by God's own decision that the Son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. 
At one time, you were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought. But now, by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends in order to bring you holy, pure, and faultless into his presence. You must, of course, continue faithful on a firm and sure foundation and must not allow yourselves to be shaken from the hope that you gained when you heard the gospel. Listen to the commentary of the founder of the Fraternity of Jerusalem, a community of monks on this idea. Quote, He was born not from human stock or human desire or human will, but from God himself. One day took to himself everything that was under his footstool and he left with his inheritance, his title of son, and the whole ransom price. He left for a far country, the faraway land, where he became as human beings are and emptied himself. His own people did not accept him, and his first bed was a bed of straw. Like a root in arid ground, he grew up before us. He was despised, the lowest of men before whom one covers his face. Very soon he came to know exile, hostility, and loneliness. After having given away everything in a life of bounty, his worth, his peace, his light, his truth, his life, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom and the hidden mystery kept secret for endless ages, after having lost himself among the lost children of the house of Israel, spending his time with the sick and not with the well-to-do, with the sinners and not with the just, and even with the prostitutes to whom he promised entrance into the kingdom of his father. After having been treated as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, as a Samaritan even, a possessed, a blasphemer, having offered everything, even his body and his blood, after having felt deeply in himself sadness and anguish and a troubled soul, after having gone to the bottom of despair, with which he voluntarily dressed himself as being abandoned by his father, far away from the source of living water. He cried out from the cross on which he was nailed, I am thirsty. And he was laid to rest in the dust and the shadow of death. And there on the third day, he rose up from the depths of hell to where he had descended, Burdened with the crimes of us all, he bore our sins, our sorrows he carried. And standing straight, he cried out, Yes, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And he reascended into heaven. Then in the silence, looking at his son and all his children since his son had become all in all, father said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let us eat and celebrate because my children, who as you know were dead, have returned to life. They were lost and have been found again. My prodigal son, capital S, has brought them all back. And they all began to have a feast, dressed in their long robes, washed white 
in the blood of the Lamb. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus epitomized the grace of this parable in Luke 15. He is every character in the story. He's the younger son without rebellion. He's the older son without resentment. He's always obedient to the father, yet never his slave. He is a beloved son. An exact representation of the Father, according to Hebrews 1, verse 3. He embodies all the Father's attributes. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, says Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, says Colossians 2, verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory, and to see him is to see the Father. Philip once asked Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responded, how? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the true Son. The model for what we are to become. He does everything the Father sends him to do, but remains completely free in all of that. He gives everything he has and receives everything in return. One man put it this way. Jesus, the beloved of the Father, leaves the Father's home to take on the sins of God's wayward children and bring them home. But while leaving, he stays close to the Father and through total obedience offers healing to his resentful brothers and sisters. Thus, for my sake, Jesus becomes the younger son as well as the older son in order to show us how to become like the Father. Isn't that neat? This is divine sonship. And it is to this sonship that I am called and you are called. This parable calls each one of us to realize to respond to and to rejoice in and to replicate the fact that, number one, grace is free of charge. It's free of charge. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by God's grace that you have been saved 
through faith, it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So that no one can boast about it. It's free of charge. But of inestimable worth. Grace is a gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the receiver. Jesus says, all I have is yours. Like the Father, he keeps nothing for himself, but he pours himself out for his sons, giving himself away without reserve. Both sons are, both sons are everything to him. Can we offer that kind of grace to others? Can you offer that kind of grace to others? Can I? Because that's what we're called to do. Grace is free of charge. Secondly, grace, there are no strings attached. One author I read wrote that there are three characteristics of the Father in this parable that must grow in us. Grief, forgiveness, and generosity. They are the three aspects of the Father's call to be home while the prodigal runs away from home. As any parent of a prodigal knows, it's, just, it's hard to just be home and waiting. Is that right? It is hard to just be home. But that's what Jesus does. He waits for those who have left home to come home ready to generously pour out his forgiveness and love. We are called to be like that Father if we are in Christ. We are no longer called to come home if we're in Christ as the younger or older sons are, but to be home as the one who is waiting to receive and forgive others with no strings attached. Is that right? That's the hardest place to be, isn't it? The absolute hardest place to be. It's a place where, like Babette's feast, it costs the giver everything and the recipient nothing. Grace, it's free of, char it's free of charge. There are no strings attached, and it's on the house. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The place of the Father is the place of the outstretched arms, ready to bless, heal, and accept and forgive, giving all yet expecting nothing in return. In a way, it's almost more comfortable to be in the wandering younger son's shoes. It's easier to be in the whining older son's place. But it's beyond our human Natural ability to seek to be in the position of the father completely and continually emptied out for his children, isn't it? That's something the Holy Spirit has to do in us. Yet that is the role Jesus assumed as your Savior and mine. And it's the place to which we are called as his followers. As someone has said, the community does not need yet another younger or elder son, whether converted or not, 
but a father who lives with outstretched hands, always desiring to let them rest on the shoulders of his returning children. People need to know about a grace that's free of charge. A grace where there are no strings attached. A grace that's truly on the house. That, my friends, is a place to call home. I can go back to sleep now. I'm going to tell you the next story. It comes from Max Lucado, one of my favorite storytellers and pastors. Five-year-old Madeline climbed into her father's lap. Did you have enough to eat, he asked her. She smiled and patted her tummy. I can't eat anymore. Did you have some of your grandma's pie? A whole piece. Joe looked across the table at his mom. Looks like you filled us up. Don't think we'll be able to do anything tonight, but just go to bed. Madeline put her little hands on either side of his big face. Oh, but Papa, this is Christmas Eve, and you said we could dance. Joe feigned a poor memory. Did I now? Well, I don't remember saying anything about dancing. Grandma smiled, shook her head as she began clearing the table. But Papa, Madeline pleaded, we always dance on Christmas Eve, just you and me. Remember? A smile burst from beneath his thick mustache. Of course I remember, darling. How could I forget? And with that, he stood and took her hand in his. And for a moment, just a moment, his wife was alive again. And the two were walking into the den to spend another night before Christmas as they had spent so many dancing away the evening. They would have danced the rest of their lives. But then came the surprise pregnancy and the complications. Madeline survived, but her mother did not. And Joe, the thick-handed butcher from Minnesota, was left to raise his Madeline alone. Come on, Papa, she tugged on his hand. Let's dance before everyone arrives. And she was right. Soon the doorbell would ring and the relatives would fill the floor and the night would be passed. But for now, it was just Papa and Madeline. Rebellion flew into Joe's world like a Minnesota blizzard. About the time she was old enough to drive, Madeline decided that she was old enough to lead her own life. And that life did not include her father. I should have seen it coming, Joe would later say, but for the life of me, I didn't. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to handle the pierced nose and the tight shirts. He didn't understand the late nights and the poor grades. And most of all, he didn't know when to speak and when to be quiet. She, on the other hand, had it all figured out. She knew when to speak to her father. Never. She knew when to be quiet. Always. The pattern was reversed, however, with the lanky, tattooed kid from down the street. He was no good, and Joe knew it. And there was no way he was going to allow his daughter to spend Christmas Eve with that kid. You'll be with us tonight, young lady. You'll be at your grandmother's house eating your grandma's pie, and you'll be with us on Christmas Eve. Though they were at the same table, they might have been on different sides of town. 
Madeline played with her food and said nothing. Grandma tried to talk to Joe, but he was in no mood to chat. Part of him was angry, part of him was heartbroken. And the rest of him would have given anything to know how to talk to this girl who once sat on his lap. Soon the relatives arrived, bringing with them a welcome end to the awkward silence. And as the room filled with noise and people, Joe stayed on one side. Madeline sat sullenly on the other. Put on the music, Joe, reminded one of his brothers. And so he did. And thinking she would be honored, he turned and walked toward his daughter. Will you dance with your papa tonight? The way she huffed and turned, you'd have thought he'd insulted her. And in full view of the entire family, she walked out the front door and marched down the sidewalk, leaving her father alone, very much alone. Madeline came back that night, but not for long. Joan never faulted her for leaving. After all, what's it like being the daughter of a butcher? And in their last days together, he tried so hard, he made her favorite dinner. She didn't want to eat it. He invited her to a movie. She stayed in her room. He bought her a new dress. She didn't even say thank you. And then there was that spring day. He left work early to be at the house when she arrived home from school. And wouldn't you know, that was the day that she never came home. Friends saw her and her boyfriend in the vicinity of the bus station. The authorities confirmed the purchase of a ticket to Chicago. Where she went from there was anybody's guess. The scrawny boy with the tattoos had a cousin. And the cousin worked the night shift at a convenience store south of Houston. And for a few bucks a month, he would let the runaways stay in his apartment at night, but they had to be out during the day, which was fine with them. They had big plans. He was going to be a mechanic, and Madeline just knew she could get a job at a department store. Of course, he knew nothing about cars, and she knew even less about getting a job. But you don't think of those things like that when you're intoxicated on freedom. After a couple of weeks, the cousin changed his mind. And the day he announced his decision, the boyfriend announced his. And Madeline found herself facing the night with no place to sleep and no hand to hold was the first of many such nights. A woman in the park told her about the homeless shelter near the bridge, and for a couple of bucks she could get a bowl of soup and a cot. A couple of bucks was about all she had, and so she used her backpack as a pillow and jacket as a blanket. The room was so rowdy it was hard to sleep. Madeline turned her face to the wall, and for the first time in several days, thought of the whiskered face of her father as he would kiss her goodnight. But as her eyes began to water, she refused to cry. She pushed the memory deep inside and determined not to think about home. She'd gone way too far to go back. The next morning, the girl in the cot beside her showed her a fistful of tips she'd made from dancing on tables. This is the last night I'll have to stay here, she said. Now I can pay for my own place. They told me they, told me they were looking for another girl. You should come by. And she reached into her pocket and pulled out a matchbook. Here's the address. Madeline's stomach turned at the thought, and all she could do was mumble, I'll think about it. And she spent the rest of the week on the streets looking for work, and at the end of the week when it was time to pay her bill at the shelter, she reached into her pocket and pulled out the matchbook. It was all that she had left. 
I won't be staying tonight, she said, and walked out the door. Hunger has a way of softening one's convictions. If Madeline knew anything, she knew how to dance. Her father had taught her. Now men the age of her father watched her. She didn't rationalize it. She just didn't think about it. Madeline simply did her work and took their dollars. She might have never thought about it except for the letters. The cousin brought them, not one or two, but a box full, all addressed to her, all from her father. Your old boyfriend must have squealed on you. These came two or three a week, complained the cousin. Give him your address. Oh, but she couldn't do that. He might find her. Nor could she bear to open the envelopes. She knew what they said. He wanted her home. But if he knew what she was doing, he wouldn't be writing. It seemed a lot less painful not to read them, so she didn't. Not that week, nor the next when the cousin brought more, nor the next when he came again. And she kept them in the dressing room at the club, organized according to postmark. And she ran her finger over the top of each, but couldn't bring herself to open a single one. Most days, Madeline was able to numb the emotions. Thoughts of home and thoughts of shame were shoved into the same part of her heart. But there were occasions when the thoughts were too strong to resist. And like the time she saw a dress in the clothing store window, a dress the same color as the one her father had purchased for her, a dress that had been far too plain for her, with much reluctance she had put it on and stood with him before the mirror. My, you are as tall as I am, he had told her, and she stiffened at his touch. Seeing her weary face reflected in the store window, Madeline realized she'd give a thousand dresses to feel his arms again. And she left the store and resolved not to pass by it again. In time, the leaves fell and the air chilled. The mail came and the cousin complained about the stack of letters that were growing. She still refused to send him an address and she refused to read a single letter. Then a few days before Christmas Eve, another letter arrived. Same shape, same color. But this one had no postmark. And it was not delivered by the cousin. It was sitting on her dressing room table. A couple of days ago, a big man stopped by and asked me to give this to you, explained one of the other dancers. Said you'd understand the message. He was here? She said anxiously. The woman shrugged. Suppose he had to be. Madeline swallowed hard and looked at the envelope and she opened it and removed the card. I know where you are, it read. I know what you do. This doesn't change the way I feel. What I've said in each letter is still true. But I don't know what you said, Madeline declared. And she pulled a letter from the top of the stack and she read it. That a second and a third, each letter had the same sentence. Each sentence asked the same question. In a matter of moments, the floor was littered with paper and her face was streaked with tears. Within an hour, she was on a bus. I just might make it in time, and she barely did. The relatives were starting to leave, and Joe was helping Grandma in the kitchen when his brother called from the suddenly quiet den. 
Joe, somebody here to see you. Joe stepped out of the kitchen and stopped. In one hand, the girl held a backpack. In the other, she held a card. And Joe saw the question in her eyes. The answer is yes, she said to her father. If the invitation is still good, the answer is yes. Joe swallowed hard. Oh my, the invitation is good. And so the two danced together again on Christmas Eve. On the floor, near the door, rested a letter with Madeline's name and her father's request. The one sentence, will you come home and dance with your papa again? Folks, the choice is yours. It's always yours. Jesus is calling you home. Let's pray. Father, it astounds me how well and how magnificently you love us. Because I can't comprehend an inkling. of how much true grace really costs. We catch glimpses of it here and there. We may experience maybe a twinkling of it in our life. But to meditate on and to contemplate all that you have done for us, all that you have poured out through your Son, Jesus Christ, all that you offer to any one of us who is wandering, It's no wonder. One of the greatest hymns in all of history, church history, is called Amazing Grace. Amazing. Astounding. Incredible. Thank you for this parable, Lord, in Luke 15. Thank you that it wasn't just a story, that it depicted something very real something very eternal, your love for us. Lord, I pray that if there is a prodigal among us in this room today that has never come to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son under the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that you would quicken their hearts today to realize that the invitation still stands. It always stands. God is calling to us to come and enter into the dance of eternal life. May they receive it, answer the call, and step up. For you are the Lord of the dance, and we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.